open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. While you're turning there, just want to take a moment to remind you uh, where we are. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, of course, uh, and we uh, have begun tracing Paul's missionary journeys, and so we are right in the middle of his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have been sent out. Uh, they went out from Antioch in Syria. I'm emphasizing Syria because, um, as you'll see, I don't want you to mix it up with the other Antioch, the Antioch in Pisidia. Anyway, they uh, sail after they left Antioch in Syria. They went over to the island of Crete. I think I failed to mention last week that the island of Crete was where Barnabas was from. They made their way all the way through the island. They came to the uh, southwest side to Paphos. Then they caught a ship uh, and sailed uh, due north. Um, up to uh, to Asia Minor and uh, came to uh, the city of Perga and then from there they went on up uh, north about a hundred miles over some very rugged mountains with a lot of uh, bandits and robbers um, along the way and made it up then to to uh, Antioch in Pisidia, so it was not. It's not the same Antioch. So please hear God's word, beginning with uh, verse thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. Now Paul and his companions set from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. On the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 400 and fifty years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, 
No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore also, uh, he says in another psalm, I will not let, or you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But when he, whom God raised up, did not see corruption, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For what I am doing, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if, even if one tells it to you. Let's pray. Father, in the time that we have this morning, I ask that you would give us your, uh, that we would give our full attention to your word and you would help us by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is reality? The dictionaries define reality as the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to idealistic or notational ideas of, of them. Most people would define reality as that which is real. That makes sense, doesn't it? Um, so physical objects are real. This pulpit is real. This building is real. The trees outside, the grass, the cars are real. In other words, that which you can see, which you can hear, which you can touch, um, which you can smell or taste, these things must be real. But what if there's a level of perception that we are unable to uh, generally experience with one of our five senses? There's things that we're just unable to perceive with our senses. Does that mean that they are not real? Let Let me explain what I'm driving at. Every physical object, like this pulpit is uh, really a collection of atoms that are bonded together. And these atoms are so small 
that they cannot be seen with the human eye. And each of these atoms are, as Niels Bohr, the the famous scientist, uh, nuclear scientist said, each atom is a mini solar system with negatively charged electrons revolving in orbits around the nucleus composed of positively charged protons and neutrally charged neurons. This pulpit seems solid. It is solid. But scientists tell us that it is actually a bunches of of atoms that are bonded together that make this pulpit. Um, I remember the first time that I heard someone explain this to me, and I really had a hard time accepting it. It didn't make sense to me. I like living in a world where what I see is what is there, that what I experience is real. That everything is just as it appeared. No more, no less. But the scientists have devised a way of taking pictures of these atoms. Uh, the only, as I understand it, and I made poor grades in science, um, but the way I understand it is they have devised a, a way of taking pictures of these atoms in metals and they use a scanning tunneling microscope to make images of these individual atoms as they are on the surface of various metals. Uh, The scientists here in the congregation could explain it a lot better. But if you take, if you Google um, taking pictures of atoms uh, you'll see some of the pictures that they've taken of these atoms and it's, it's not really impressive. Um, not like looking at pictures of Jupiter or something like that. It, it really is un, in, unimpressive. But you can see the atoms bundled together as clear as day in these, these photographs that they've taken. The reason I'm saying this is that reality does not appear um, just as we perceive it. Reality is much more complicated than what we are able to see or experience. And even by using a scanning, tunneling microscope, we we are unable to see the levels of detail that exist all around us in the objects uh, that are around us. The reason I'm saying this is because I want you to be prepared this morning to look beyond the world you experience. I want you to look with me this morning at reality as it really is. And by seeing reality as it really is, it will change us. Seeing reality as it really is will rearrange our priorities. Seeing reality as it really is will reprioritize, I hope, the noon hour today (laughs) so that you say wow this is what reality is I'll give the preacher another 10 or 15 minutes before I tune him out seeing reality as it really is will affect our wills seeing reality as it really is will transform our thinking in short it will I believe 
change our lives. I've got an outline on the back of your bulletin. And I probably shouldn't point it out because I'm actually very ashamed of the first two subpoints in the bulletin. The first point that I'm driving at is that Jesus is the resurrected Savior. And the subpoint A, Israel's history prepared for his coming, and subpoint B, those living in Jerusalem rejected and murdered him. I I outline the sermon uh, as one of the first things I do and I continue studying. And as I studied, I realized I need to rearrange a couple of things. In fact, I left out, the reason I'm so ashamed is I left out what is most important in verses 16 through 25. I should have stated that first sub-point, God guided Israel's history to prepare for Christ's coming. I left God out of the first sub-point. I left him out of subpoint B as well, and that is inexcusable. Because God is very active here in verses 16 through 25. Let's look at verse 17. It was God who chose Israel. It was God who made Israel great. It was God who led Israel out of Egypt. And I simply said that Israel history was preparing. No, it's God who's preparing Israel's history. It is God who is shaping Israel's history. Look at verse 18. He bore Israel in the wilderness. Now, our English Standard Version has it like he, he was patient with him. He bore with them in their wickedness. He, he didn't destroy them. I think the, the better translation is that he bore them in his arms. He carried them through the wilderness. Verse 19, God destroyed the Canaanite nations that were living in the uh, land of Canaan. God gave the land of Canaan to Israel to be their possession, to be their inheritance. In verse 20, God gave Israel judges. In verse 21, God gave Israel their first king. In verse 22, God removed their first king. And he replaced him. He replaced Saul with David. And then in verse 23, God brought Jesus to Israel as their promised Savior. See, it's God who is working in Israel's history. It is God who is preparing uh, the way for Jesus to come. Do you see that? God is the architect of history. He directed every event, every circumstance, every detail according to His will. And the central aim of all His plans was to bring Jesus Christ into the world to be Israel's Savior. God is just as active in our world today as He was back in the Old Testament. He is the architect of every one of our personal histories. He is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Your life, your choices, your desires, your circumstances are all in the hands of our sovereign God. And just like you cannot readily see 
the atoms that are bonded together to make this pulpit or to make the pews you are sitting in, but they are real nonetheless, so also you cannot readily see the mind and will of God as He is working out the circumstances in your life, but He is working nonetheless. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for all of us? It means that all of us must reckon with God. You are not only living under His watchful gaze, but you are inescapably bound up with Him because He is working out the circumstances and details of your life. And this goes not only for Christians who believe in Him, but this is equally true for everyone who rejects Him or who does not believe in Him. God is the, He is the explanation for, He is the meaning of everything. He is not detached from the world. He is present and He is active. And He is the one who gives meaning to everything here in this world. Now need I mention that we live in an age and in a culture that categorically rejects this? But what does God say about a culture that rejects Him? He says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. He says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. He says that though the nations rage against him and try and break off the chains of his authority, that he laughs at them and scoffs at them because they are acting so foolishly to think that they can escape the true and the living God. God would say that we live in a superficial and naive age that would say that there is no God. Listen to John Piper. He says, It is superficial and naive to discuss events and never deal with their most important connections, namely their connections with God and His purposes. I want you to pause for a moment and think about that. I want you to examine yourself in this regard are you as superficially secular and naive as most people who live in this world are you a practical atheist even though you believe in God do you live six days a week as if he doesn't exist or do you live in the light of his presence knowing that He is God and He is the one in whom you have to do. And that everything in this world only truly makes sense when you see it in light of His existence. Listen to John Piper again. He says, Virtually all our communication media and educational enterprises are superficial because they don't deal with the most important aspects of their subject, namely their connections with God and His purposes. Almost all news reports are superficial. Almost all history books are superficial. Virtually all public education in America is superficial. Almost all editorial and news commentary is superficial. 
all this because of the incredible, unimaginable uh, disregard for God, the main reality in the universe, the explanation behind everything and without which all understandings are superficial. When the main thing is missing... The thing is superficial, whatever it is. And when we try and view our world without first recognizing that this is God's world, the end result will be chaos. The point is that this is God's world and that He is directing everything Everything without exception according to His will and for His purposes. This also means, therefore, that everything in this world gains its meaning from Him. So it did not take God by surprise when those living in Jerusalem rejected and murdered Jesus by hanging Him on the cross. Look at verses 27 through 29. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You see that? They did what God had foretold in the Old Testament would happen. They did what, verse 29 as well, they carried out all that was written about Jesus when they hung him on the cross and crucified him even though he was um, without guilt and without sin. It was all according to the plan of God. Listen to Acts 2.23. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death uh, by nailing him to the cross. Even those who reject God, even those who do not believe in God, even those who are running from Him, cannot escape Him. They thought that they could kill the Messiah by putting Him on the cross, that they could escape His authority over them. And they ended up doing what God's will had purposed beforehand should happen, what had been prophesied in the Old Testament uh, of Him. Even in their rebellion, they were face to face with the sovereign God. And it was God's will that Jesus die on the cross because it was God's will that He be raised from the dead. This is the sum and substance of the Gospel. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. He was stretched out there on that cross so that He could become sin for us. So that through His death and then through His subsequent resurrection He might justify all those for whom He died. Look at verses 32 and 33. 
but we bring you the good news that what Jesus, I mean, that what God promised to the fathers, this He fulfilled to us. This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. We live in a world where God is active. We live in a world where God is directing our lives. We live in a world where He has entered into our world and the person of Jesus Christ became a human being and died for sinners. We live in a world where Jesus Christ rose from the grave. We live in a world where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God and He is ruling over us and over all nations until He brings everything underneath His feet. How is He bringing everything underneath His feet? Through the proclamation of His glorious gospel. What is reality? God is reality. To ignore Him or to fail to see everything in relation to Him in this world is to see a distorted view of reality. It is to take a superficial or naive view of reality. What are we to do with this? If God is the true reality, if we live in this world as His creatures... How how do we respond to this? Well, there's only two responses. And it's given in verses 38 through 41. The first response is verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The first response is to believe what the Bible says. To believe that this is God's world. To believe that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. Do you believe this? If you believe this, you have forgiveness of sins. It's promised right here in verse 38. If you believe this, you are freed from trying to appease God. Because Jesus has done it all. If you believe this, you are free from having to follow your own sinful desires. For He he killed sin in you when He gave you new life in Jesus. Yes, you're still a sinner, but sin doesn't have to lead you around by the nose. If you believe this, you are freed from that superficial and naive view of the world that so many around us have. If you believe this, you are freed from having to follow the shallow and superficial ways of this world. You are freed to serve God wholeheartedly. You are freed to live in a true and authentic life as it was meant to be lived. In Jesus Christ, the image of God that was distorted by the fall has been restored You are free to have a joy that is unspeakable. And so that is the first alternative. The first response is to believe. Second alternative is to beware. 
verses 40 and 41. Look, you or beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be you astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. The only other alternative to believing is to beware. God is real. You are living in His reality, even if you choose not to believe it. This is His world. Whether you believe in Him or not does not affect His existence in one way or another. So you are giving a warning. Beware. Beware lest you perish in your sin and die in your unbelief. Beware lest you have to face God without being clothed in the purpose, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what, if you are heeding this warning, what should you do? Well, then the first response, believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray that everyone under the the sound of the proclamation of your word and of the gospel of our Lord Jesus would believe it. And Father, I pray for those who believe it yet um, because of the, the pulls of this world and the cares of this life live practically without you. The parable of the soil says that those people have life but for a short time and then it is choked out. God, I pray that everyone here would have a life that is planted in the good soil and that they bring forth fruit 30, 60, even a hundredfold as they follow our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in His name. Amen.